My name is Alex Kashuta, and this is the Subversive Podcast. It's an excuse for me to talk to some of the most interesting people on the heterodox to heretic spectrum. Everyone from iconoclast philosophers to rogue scientists to real post-BuzzFeed journalists and our true intellectual elite, Twitter anonymous accounts. In short, they're quite subversive. Enjoy. Today, I'm joined by Richard Hanania. He is the president of the Center for the Study of Partisanship and Ideology, the CSPI, um, an organization which supports and funds research on how ideology and policy contribute to scientific and social progress. He is also um, one of my favorite contrarians, uh, a man that I often very strongly agree with and very sometimes very strongly disagree with because that's essentially his function uh, on the internet and, and everywhere. So I'm, I'm really happy to have him on. Uh, welcome, Richard. Thanks, Alex. Glad to be here. Um, is, is contrarianism uh, a calling? Is it something that um, you've gravitated towards since, since you were a, a wee child? Or <laughs> how did yeah. you... <laughs> I mean, world. I don't like people always say words like contrarian, heterodox. I, I, I tend, I, I cringe a little bit, not that you make me cringe, but, but when I hear those things, um, you know, I think that people focus on the controversy rather than, you know, the substance of what, what a person believes. So I never set out and say, I'm going to be contrarian, I'm going to be heterodox, I'm going to be, you know, different than other people. I try to, you know, think logically and think for myself. And just often I, uh, I end up there and it's as far as um, yeah, whether that's always sort of been a part of me, yeah, it has been. I mean, I, I think when I was young, it was it, it took a much less healthy direction uh, in the sense that I really couldn't uh, couldn't understand other people. I really couldn't get along with them. I didn't realize, I didn't understand concepts like white lies or like bragging or like these small exaggerations, like the sort of the forms of dishonesty and sort of the games you have to play. It took me a really, really long time, you know, not until I was like late teens or 20s to even be able to sort of comprehend that, have that sort of sink in. So, that, you know, that was, uh, you know, that was, that was a problem. That was sort of a, you could see that as a defect when I was younger. As I grew up and I sort of understood um, social relations a little better, I, I, you know, consciously tried to improve. I just got more experience. I think my sort of independent thinking has uh, become more and more of a, of a benefit. And, you know, I think it helps me understand the world, helps me get an audience and, and get my voice out there. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, it's it's interesting to be the guy who, um, you know, half of the internet is mad at, depending on, on the month or on, on the <laughs> It's, um, you know, there, there's a meme going around, you know, the, the Carl Schmidt meme about the, uh, the friend-enemy distinction. And it seems like this is a distinction that you're... Um, willingly disregarding. <laughs> who, who? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not uh, running for office. I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not uh, leading a political movement now. So I think, you know, that gives me a, a little bit of freedom. I think we have too much of that. I think we have too much of people trying to fit in one side or the other, or tailoring their message to the audience. Uh, so yeah, why not do something different? Yeah, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're kind of outside of the game. And I think, you know, being in a think tank, this is, this is your think tank, isn't it? The, the it is, yes. Okay, so you've kind of willingly taken yourself out of the equation and you're um, 
kind of a, a court philosopher of sorts. Or... Well, yeah, I mean, but I still have sort of a, a foot in the mainstream. Though. I mean, I still, I can, I publish still in, you know, I was in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago. I was in, uh, you know, I've been in the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and I've published in Newsweek. So I, I've, you know, academic journals too. I've got a book, uh, books coming out. Uh, so I, it's not just, you know, it's not just me and my think tank uh, doing the thing. I still have connections out there. I just don't have to be, you know, part of a political movement. I think still, still people want to hear from me and I'm, I'm, I'm not isolated myself from any larger conversation. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's um it's it's important to be ambiguous enough to be still, you know, so, someone might still want to invite you because the, the thing is if you want to build a platform usually, you know, people do kind of go uh, on the friend enemy distinction, <laughs> you know. They, oh yeah, no, that's the easiest path. Somebody accused me like a few times. People have accused me of trying to like maximize my follower count. Like, no, like there are things that I talk about, and I know every single time I talk about them, I'm going to lose a lot of followers. And it happens every time. A lot of my followers are anti-vaxxers. They're Trumpists. I tell them they're stupid, and I say it again and again and again. And they they unfollow me. I, I lose followers that week. Oh well, you know, I, they, I could be quiet, and I would probably, you know, I would probably gain followers. But yeah, I'm. I'm now, I'm interested in having a, having a voice being out there, but no, maximizing followers or maximizing influence, you know, is not the only goal. You have an, an interesting theory about experts um, that you know the the experts out there aren't uh, you know they they don't fulfill their their promise in terms of the predictions that they uh, that they return, uh, and that that's been the case in in you know several recent events, and I think you know coronavirus has been pretty much one of these events. And yeah. I feel like a lot of the the anti-vaxxers or the vaccine curious, the vaccine reticent, the vaccine interested but not committed, like I would probably consider myself one of these people, um, kind of see that as a as a or have this reaction as a response to the abject failure of expertise uh, and uh, not only the abject failure of expertise, but also, you know, having it inform any sort of policy. Like even if we have certain, you know, scientific results related to how coronavirus acts, it's not really implemented in policy. So I know you have a lot of thoughts on this. You've, you've written on this, but what's, you know, how do you, um, you know, how, do you have empathy for people like me who are not necessarily <laughs> just on the, on the vaccine plan? <laughs> I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I think it's 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 a great yeah. uh, measure if you're in a risk category. I think I would take it if I was, you know, yeah. older. Yeah, it's not a crazy. I don't think it's crazy a crazy decision at your age and 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 health. Assuming assuming you're healthy, it's not crazy. Yeah, we are in a place where a lot of old fat people in America are not taking the vaccine, and that's why we have ridiculously high death rates that happen to be uh, concentrated in Republican areas and Republican counties. And it's it's, it's just a shame that you know the liberals are the only ones who care about these these red states killing themselves. It's really a failure of the conservative movement. But on the uh, on the issue of um, expertise more uh, more generally, yeah, I mean, th- there's, you know, somebody gets a degree, they, they become a professor, or they become some kind of government bureaucrat. And uh, what, you know, how do they get that position? Do they necessarily know more than you or know more than any other intelligent person? And, you know, there's no proof of that, you know, an inventor who, and who, uh, you know, who, who comes up with some kind of machine or comes up, comes up with some kind of gadget or somebody who even who makes a lot of money in a market, you know, they've proven something. They've gone out in, in the real world and done something. Well, the, you know, the, you become a professor 
what, peer review, other people looking at your work and saying, this is good work. And they got their position because they also passed some peer review and people said that that's a good work. That's a self-licking ice cream cone. So what uh, Phil Tutlock, the great psychologist did, was he went out and he got a bunch of experts and he, mostly on geopolitical matters. And he said, you know, forecast, like what's the, you know, what's the GDP growth going to be of whatever country? What's the likelihood of war? What does this give me numbers, give me percentages so we can, we can track it. And then he took some, you know, other people who were not experts in the field, you know, but maybe smart people who are in other fields. And the experts who were uh, predicting things in their own field didn't do any better. So, so what does that tell you? The, the whole, the whole concept of expertise is, is sort of uh, fake. Now, people can take that and they could say, well, I can't, I can't believe anything, you know, any, anyone says, and it is a, it is a problem because just because someone is an expert doesn't mean they know anything. And so, I mean, if people are just, you know, people are sort of confused about what to do. I mean, I, I would suggest finding people who, you know, because there are super forecasters, there are people who predict, consistently predict things well, and they tend to have certain traits in common. They tend to be people who think, uh, uh, they tend to be people who are not very partisan in their thinking. They're not very attached to the Democrats being right or the Republicans being right. They're people who think in statistical terms. They don't ignore base rates. You know, if the GDP growth has been 3% for the last 20 years, you don't predict it's going to be 20% or minus 20% uh, the next year. That's probably not a good prediction. And people often get attention for making these, you know, crazy predictions about why very variation of norms, like there's going to be a civil war or there's going to be a collapse of China. You hear these things all the time. They're not, they're not very likely because such things don't happen very often. Uh, so I, w- I would suggest following people like that. But you can't just say, you know, what you can't do is just say, I don't trust the experts at all because, look, you still, tr- you still trust the experts. You still get on the plane. You still wash your hands after you go to the bathroom. I mean, they're like, they lied to me about so many things. Well, they also told you that the polio vaccine works and the establishment also told you that the measles, <laughs> measles, mumps, and rubella, and that stuff worked too. So sometimes they were right. Yeah. And so just saying we're not going to trust them, that doesn't really work either. Yeah, I think I think the 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 fear here is that there's been a marked decline in the trustworthiness of experts recently, or at least that's the perception um, for different reasons. Um, you know, I feel like, especially in America, where essentially all the expertise comes from, there's so much polarization, there's so much partisanship that you know th- these are like two poles that pull the narrative towards them, and they also pull the experts because they have you know kind of a, a power. group gravity around them as well so um you know the the source is tainted at least it feels to me and that's the source where all the expertise you know trickles down even to backwater places like romania where i am so um that's at least to me that's why hmm, you know I'm, i don't mistrust expertise on principle but it feels like this is a time where you know there there is an extra reason to be you know you know stroking your chin a little bit more when when someone makes a big uh, pronouncement yeah yeah, I think so. I feel like track, look, the trackers of vaccines in human history are are very, very good. It's not like there's some like anti-racist angle to vaccines. So it's not like when they tell you BLM, you know, the protests are okay, but uh, other kind of protests are not okay. You know, you could see you could see why that's nonsense. Yes, but it's but generally you're right. It's very concerning. It's sort of like in uh, you know the the communist world, which you know the ex-communist world, which which you live in, where everything had to be socialist. Something right? You had socialist literature and socialist uh, architecture, and you know socialist you know whatever genetics was shaped by a uh, by you know 
Lysenkoism and all these other things in the Soviet Union. And you have that same thing today. I think in the last five, 10 years, particularly in the US, everything is about uh, wokeness, identity politics, you know, racism. People give it different terms, but, you know, concerned with racism, sexism. It's become everything. It's become, you know, epidemiology. It's become anthropology. It's become, you know, any, anything you could think of has this, uh, this feminism and this race component. And yeah, it's, it's very, it's very disturbing. It's sort of a, a totality. It's a sort of a, a it's, it's totalizing. I mean, it's just completely imbues, you know, imbues everything, you know, that, that, uh, that it touches. I mean, I remember the night growing up in the 1990s in the U.S. I mean, the like the late night comics like weren't known for being political. They were known for being sort of center of the uh, center of the road and like, you know, Republicans and Democrats could both laugh at their jokes. And, uh, you know, even the audience, you know, was fine with that. Like the audience wouldn't like aggressively attack them if they if they weren't left wing enough. And it's just it's just crazy where we've gotten where everything's been politicized and politicized in this very, you know, strange direction. Yeah, this is a, another thing that I wanted to discuss with you because another one of your um, hypotheses is essentially kind of a, a theory of power, at least a theory of power in the last, let's say, 50 years, 60 years, 70 years, I think by now. Um, it's, um, you know, the ascendancy of liberalism. And um, you kind of, um, your theory, as far as I understand it, is that, you know, the, the wokeness that we see is essentially law. And it has been law in the U.S. for a long yeah. time, essentially civil civil rights law. Um, but I, and I agree with that. Uh, but it feels to me like that's the kind of the crystallized version uh, of it. Like, you know, why was civil rights law um, so aggressively imposed at that time? And kind of why has it morphed? Like, what what, what is your um, your theory of power? Like, why liberal? Why has liberalism gotten to this point? Yeah, it's it's a good it's a good question. Nobody's asked me that question. Why civil rights sort of became the motivating uh, force in American policy? But look, uh, the American history um, uh, issues surrounding African Americans, uh, Black people, have been there from the beginning, and they've just been a fundamental divide. So this is something very deep in the United States. Obviously, we had slavery. We had uh, parts of the, the country that's entire their entire economy was based on slavery, and you know we fought a civil war over it. After the Civil War, you know the, there was a big issue about how much to uh, give power back to whites. Southerners and how much to try to uh, force, you know, kind of be uh, equal uh, vision of equality onto them. So this this question has like always been there, just very been very very fundamental. And in the nineteen you know the nineteen fifties and then in the nineteen sixties, one side one side won, right? One side won pre- uh, pretty decisively. Got the legal changes they wanted. Uh, things like anti discrimination laws. I mean, there were there were people who wanted it uh, back after the Civil War. You know, in one case the Supreme Court uh, uh, struck it down. They said it's unconstitutional because we still have you know private property rights in this country. But you know they overcame all those oppositions. You know the uh, Roosevelt administration uh, through the New Deal um, and their other policies. They sort of expanded government power. They they sort of uh, set the uh, uh, set the terms of this where the, these constitutional objections weren't really taken seriously anymore. Uh, so in the 1960s, you get the Civil Rights Act. So it's just a very emotional, powerful thing. People felt you know bad bad for black people. They they felt they felt guilty over American history, and they wanted to equalize outcomes. Right. Uh, and you know what happened was you started getting what happened in the 1960s, like dir- directly afterwards. I mean, you get this exploding crime rate. You get these problems in the inner cities. You get uh, out of work about what black birth rates get up. It's not a, not only do you not achieve equality on some measures, things for black people get worse. And we we've had no answer to this in the United States. And so it's been sort of this problem that everyone you know uh, makes everyone uncomfortable. 
And the answer has been, well, the discrimination is still there. The racism is still there. It's just a little bit better hidden. It's more systemic. You know, if you, if you disprove like racism in one area, if you show, well, okay, the reason that black people don't get loans, at, at, you know, approved at the same rate is because they, uh, you know, they, they might not have as much credit. Then you take a step back and you say, well, the history is the reason they don't have much credit. So, so wherever, wherever you argue with them, they can always go one step back and say, this is the racism. This is the, uh, this is the start. And so, the, and the woman, you know, and the women's movements, I think, and then later LGBTQ, as they call it. I mean, this all sort of, I think it just reasoned from analogy. It just was sort of piggy bank on the black issue. And then immigrants, you know, people weren't thinking about that during, you know, the Civil, Civil Rights Act, even though they were passing a, a law on immigration. Uh, it's funny because it, people don't know that the, uh, the, the way sex got into the uh, Civil Rights Act was somebody was trying to kill it. They were trying to say, it's so absurd, a society where we didn't discriminate between men and women. Let's just put sex in there and then we can kill the stuff and then we won't get a civil rights act based on race. So the original intent of this was just like, haha, you know, this is just like, this is going to destroy the bill. And it ended up being real. And then the women's movement came and, you know, we, we've just been expanding to victim groups uh, ever since. But yeah, I, th- I, think the pro- the, I think the problem with, uh, with uh, the difficulties Blacks have faced in America is sort of the, uh, is sort of the, um, the sort of root cause of all this and in our history um, I, you know people have like philosophical explanations like oh it's because of puritanism or it's because of the frankfurt school i, I think that's that's a little too com- that's a little too complicated it's trying to be a little too sophisticated i think it's just simple people you know they recognize we treated black people badly in this country they felt bad about it they wanted to do something about it um and things sort of uh, uh took off from there yeah, there's a there's a kind of a a, a common theory that I, I think I subscribe to as well now, kind of in in, in our spaces, is that um, essentially everyone is liberal, but you know the liberals, I mean the progressives are really liberal, uh, and the conservatives are kind of liberal, so that's why they essentially can't uh, can't form um, a, a powerful opposition to something they essentially agree with in principle. You know the idea that you know there there is a certain type of progress. Maybe they don't agree with that. Um, because one thing that we probably agree on is that the conservatives are laughably ineffective and they have been laughably ineffective for you know, decades upon decades since, since the civil rights era. Um, mm. Do you subscribe to this in, in, in some way? I mean, it's, uh, it's, it seems like, you know, I think you mentioned that in one of your articles that it's, it's, it's pretty strange that the, the best thing that the conservatives can, can come up with is, you know, talk radio is, uh, yeah. is riling up their constituencies with all sorts of uh, new woke anecdotes and, and you know, building a Patreon <laughs> or, or things like that. Uh, so um, I don't know. What's, what's your feeling about this theory? Yeah, I think that the, you know, whether, you know, the, there was, there was, there is, you know, so there's, people say that, you know, American politics is between different kinds of liberalism. And I, I think that's true. But I think what's happened with conservatives in America is they don't even stand up for the old tradition um, of liberalism, right? They've gone along in a sort of uncomfortable and weak, but sometimes enthusiastic way with sort of the civil rights resolution. So it's a liberal idea. You know, I think, you know, liberal in the way the term is understood to say private property is very important. Um, you know, these anti-discrimination laws, they go, they go too far. No Republican does that. Nobody in conservative media uh, really does that. So you, like sometimes people say libertarians are the problem. You know, I respect libertarians a little bit more than conservatives because they have, they, they do sometimes have a uh, have a um, you know a sort of principled stand on these things, um, and if you know if you took a principled stand for private property, you know a lot of the civil rights stuff, which is which is talking which which is about you know violating property property, violating the freedom of association, a lot of that stuff, at least what government's doing, uh, 
goes away. But yeah, I mean, the larger problem with uh, the, con- the conservative movement is they don't have a story about what happened in the 1960s, right? They'll say Democrats, uh, you know, Republicans are the party of civil rights. It's funny. It's technically true. Republicans uh, voted more for the Civil Rights Act. But what happened was all the Southern Democrats who voted against civil rights left and became Republicans over the Civil Rights Act. So the Republicans were the, the, the uh, Republican nominee in 1964 was Barry Goldwater, who was opposed to the Civil Rights Act, right? And that, that was sort of the, the godfather, intellectual godfather, conservative movement. I mean, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan was also skeptical about the civil rights movement, who, who they love. So the, the entire history, the story that conservatives told themselves is just a complete lie because they don't want to challenge the broader civil rights narrative. They want to be in that tradition of, you know, there was Lincoln and then there was uh, Martin Luther King. And, you know, they, they, want to take, they want to take credit for it, which they can't take credit for. They can't take credit for it. I mean, that's just, that's just absurd. And no intelligent person um, is fooled by this. And so they don't really have a... Uh, they don't. They don't really have a coherent story that makes sense. That tells you, you know, where, where the conservative movement's been and where it actually disagrees with liberalism. It's just not there, and so they've been just sort of going along with these trends for the for the last, you know, fifty, sixty years. Yeah, because essentially, what their um, their proposal is um, a weird concept of you know equality of opportunity, um, which has been tried i think in in certain ways or at least you know that's that's ostensibly what what's what's been tried but it hasn't really worked so they're they're they keep pushing that and saying okay you know we're just gonna have to do this again um and it's i think that's the best the best thing that they have in their in their uh you know in their hand like it's it's pushing equality of opportunity again and again and again um and i think that's that's why the the progressives are winning because you know it's it's obviously true that you know they're whatever variant you try, there's no such thing as equality of opportunity. You know, if you really take the magnifying glass to it, there there is no such thing. So. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think I agree with that. I mean, because we have, you know, we have parents and we have families and they give us, you know, yeah. So conservatives believe in the family too, but then they also believe in the equality of opportunity. Well, how does, how does that work? Because if your family, if your parents are drug addicts and mine are, you know, did everything to give me everything in life, we're not going to have equality of opportunity, but if we have family, we're going to have these differences between people. So I think you're right. The idea of equality of opportunity is itself incoherent as much as equality of you know outcome. Yeah. It's um it's a it's a strange thing to be uh to be a, a GOP conservative at this point. But I do think there's um there's been a, a movement in people trying to maybe take a little bit more of a like a illiberal angle on things, or at least, you know, they they're a bit more they're a bit happier to to put a stake in the ground and say, Okay, these these are our principles. We're going to go after this very specific thing. Um I mean very specific more specific than not specific at all, <laughs> which yeah. is what, you know, the kind of the principled, uh, you know, old school, uh, uh, fusionist conservatism was, uh, was about. So, um, I'm curious, do you think there is a, a new breed of conservative on the horizon? Like these, uh, you know, um, the Santis or the, <laughs> the more, the more internet popular, uh, variant of conservatives, um, people who are you know, a bit more, a bit more, Brawny, you know. I think they're okay. So let me, let me. You know, it's it's interesting because there's Trump, and it's just such a Trump is just a thing by himself. And um, you know, there is a there's a different there is sort of a difference here, and that there's like 
if you look at what conservatism was or the Republican establishment, what they were 20 to 40 years ago, a lot of times they were moving forward, quote unquote, forward on civil rights, you know, more towards wokeness. Uh, so this Nixon uh, uh, signed the executive order to get affirmative action in the federal government. George H.W. Bush signed the um, uh, the uh, Civil Rights Act of, I think, 1991, um, which expanded which expanded some of these uh, so-called protections. Uh, and what you're seeing with the conservative movement is I think you're seeing at least less of that. They're not going to go along with the expansion. So and even they'll roll back some stuff. There, so Trump, for example, on some of the, the trans uh, bathroom stuff uh, for the kids in uh, school, they rolled that back a little bit. It was tough with it as administration. Jeff Sessions, you know, uh, convinced him to do it. Um, and then, but and then there's other and there's other stuff too, like the, um, you know. So I think a DeSantis administration would be pretty would be pretty hard on that stuff. What the executive can do, uh, you know. At the same time, during the Trump uh, during the Trump administration, uh, there was a Supreme Court case that basically wrote gender theory uh, into American law. It was called Bostock, said you couldn't fire someone for being gay or transgender, and you know this is just another expansion of the Civil Right uh, Civil Rights Act. And two conservative justices, you know, went along with it. So I think that was probably the most radical thing uh, that was done on the social issues front during the Trump administration. Uh, sort of his fault, or I mean, he points one of those justices. Um, the uh, uh, you know there was there was no movement on like affirmative action uh, things like. Like that, you know, there's some stuff like you know they would stop going after local police for uh, for so-called racism just because they arrested you know people of this race or that, and they would stop you know they would not even stop but be less likely to go after like school districts for disciplining uh, kids of different all this stuff is wokeness, um, and so there so there is I think a little bit more you know come a little bit of a way since Nixon and George H W Bush and that there is some kind of pushback to the stuff when Republicans are in office. Um, there is no grander vision of how to roll back wokeness. The best case scenario you're going to get for the Republican administration is they're going to sort of, you know, things will move maybe incrementally slower uh, in a woke direction. Um, and actually, it's probably going to get overwhelmed by the fact that there's a cultural backlash to when a conservative is office. So Trump, I think the 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 fact that he made all educated people uh, this woke, you know, overwhelmed any policy uh, that he did, even if his policy might have been a few steps away from wokeness. Uh, so yeah, I don't I don't think conservatives are thinking about these things very carefully. I mean, me just bringing up civil rights law. I mean. There's people who've talked about this. I mean, like Chris Caldwell, but it really should be the focus of what you're talking about when you're talking about wokeness. And no, you know, no politician that I've seen has really, you know, taken this mantle and say, I'm going to do something about civil rights law or think about them in a way, you know, they're introducing bills like Marco Rubio introduced a bill there to say, you know, you could sue your corporations if they're too woke. I mean, this stuff, this stuff like this is a joke. I mean, it's, it's, it's a way to get, you know, retweets and, and donations and followers and whatever. Uh, so the, there's this talk radio sort of uh, uh, aspect to it all, this uh, kind of uh, just, you know, being very online, trying to own the libs. And, and there's much fewer serious people. I mean, the left has a lot, many more serious people in the sense that they want to change the world. They'll dedicate their life into going into nonprofit, having a theory of legal change, you know, going to sue the right person to sue and present the right legal theory, not being on Twitter or arguing with people or trying to, you know, own the other side, but actually doing the hard work on a daily basis. There's just a lot, lot more people on the, on the left uh, who are like that. And, you know, that's a problem for conservatives. Yeah. Do you think that um, banning critical race theory uh, will will have its intended effect, or the, if that because it seems like this is the first time, you know, someone does something that looks 
effective or you know is it well i mean happened i don't know in terms of, of the legal level how it's going yeah. to be implemented who is actually going to uh, enforce yeah. this law is a different question well you know i don't know if, you, if you've been paying attention to american politics for long enough to know this but like eight or ten years ago there were all these laws passed at the state level said we're going to ban sharia law <laughs> and so like okay so oklahoma now is not governed by sharia law because you know ten years ago uh they passed this law and it's funny because it was like such a thing that like you said to get on you know the news and you know obviously oh, there was no sharia law uh threat in all these states and i don't know if they got struck down by the courts, so they're still on the books, but I mean, they just don't matter. Uh, but um, critical race theory, I mean, it's a little, it's a little more serious than that. I mean, this, so this, this can, I mean, people did talk about when Trump was in office, when he did the critical race theory executive order, and I think the federal government is the real power here. I think the state is a, is a bit overrated. When he did his executive order, and it, and it, because Rufo got on Tucker, and this was like, I don't know, six months before the presidency was over, uh, they were talking about like these people were getting their, uh, uh, they were on Twitter saying my contract, you know, I had a contract to go do this for the government, this trading, and it got canceled. A chilling effect. That's what you want a chilling effect on the other side. That's what civil rights did uh, for conservatism. So you you want a chilling effect uh, to hurt the other side. You don't want to be, you know, liberal and just give them, you know, uh, the best uh, opportunity to make their argument. You know, ideally, maybe, maybe you want that, but that's not the way the real world works. The real world works is it's going to tilt one way or the next or the other way. And then somebody is going to be chilled because somebody's going to be on the wrong side of, you know, whichever move, whichever direction we're moving in. Uh, so I thought that was serious. I think it was a, 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 a um, an example of now Trump didn't do this in a comprehensive way. Um, and it was at the end of the administration. So like the stuff that, you know, but, but uh, like a smart leader who was focused on this and who, who started from the beginning of his administration and really focused on this stuff, I think could make a difference at the federal level at the state level, you know, not teaching critical race theory. I mean, it's fine. I'm not opposed to it. I, I just, I, 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 don't like the argument people say, oh, it's against freedom. I mean, look, it's a government school. A government school, the curriculum is set by government. Is it the legislator? Is it the school board? Whatever. It's government. It, it is a government institution. They're going to teach some things and they're not going to teach other things. So if you say critical race theory is bad, then go ahead, you know, ban uh, teaching critical race theory. Um, and, it, you know, at the margin, maybe it'll make things a little bit better, but, but it's still the same people who thought critical race theory was a good idea in the first place who have access to your kids all day. And I think, you know, the the politics of the uh, of the school boards, of the education industry, of uh, public school teachers. I think that's going to continue dominating what kids are taught. You can't you can't micromanage these things. It's it's about who has institutional power, and, and this doesn't change that. Yeah. How um how optimistic are you, or how how much do you think this is possible for people to actually exit from uh, the 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 mainstream? You know, the the public school system. The you know the kind of the these institutions that are permeated with, you know, people who will in some way teach critical race theory or raise something to your children, even if, even if it is banned. Um, so is, is there a possibility of, of kind of splitting? Uh, sure. Sure. I mean, like the, so there's, I, I think something like 10 or 15% of kids already go to either private schools or they're homeschooled. Uh, so, you know, there's, there is a, a lot of people who, who um, have checked out of the public school system. Now others probably would if they could afford it. And so what the Republicans often do at the state level is they try to give money directly to parents, give them vouchers and the teachers unions fight them tooth and nail. Why do they fight them tooth and nail? Because they know that a lot of people would choose not to go to the 
uh, to go to public school. So I think things can be done here. Now, if you look at the school, yeah, school choice is like an old conservative idea. Um, but if you, look, if you look at actually the numbers, and there's a guy named Corey D'Angelo, who uh, I follow on Twitter and, and who writes about this, you look at like the, you know, his organization, they did a report and they showed the uh, number of kids who became eligible. So like some some uh, governor will say, I signed a bill to expand school choice, and it'll cover like, you know, 1% of the population or something. But like what conservatives have done on the school issue, they've, they've talked a lot, a, lot, a lot about it. The thing is, these th- political, these things are politically hard. I mean, the, the people are not with you. If you really want to defund public education, you're going to get a massive electoral backlash because most people are not like sitting around worried about wokeness all day. They're basically just people watching TV and anything that seems radical is going to anger them. And if you you know take money away from the public schools, it's going to anger them. I mean, that, that, that's going to happen. Sometimes you need people who are either can make the case or are willing to take the uh, uh, the political con- the consequences, you know, willing to lose an election or two to actually actually change things. Um, so, I, you know, in theory, things can be done. It, it's not like if you had, you know, a smart conservative movement, a smart anti-woke movement, there aren't like places where you can take away the left's power. It's just very politically difficult. Um, you need politicians who are a little bit brave or you need uh, activist movement or an, ele- or an intellectual sort of establishment that holds politicians accountable, right? That doesn't just, you know, clap if they introduce some bill that doesn't mean anything that's not going to do anything, but they're actually smart enough to sit there and think about who could be doing more and what could they be doing more on and then hold them, you know, uh, accountable for that. So I, I don't see that, but in theory, you know, in theory, it could happen. Yeah, that's um, a kind of hopeful, hopeful message for, for the people attempting that. Um, you also have a, a, another interesting um, theory about the feminization of politics and the feminization of the, the, the public space in general. Um, uh, and I feel like, you know, coronavirus policy seems to be like the, the, the big thing that's happened lately that is probably, I don't know, the, the, the crowning achievement of safetyism, you know. Yeah many ways so uh, what what led to this point like how is it just you know women entering the workforce influencing policy you know giving women the vote was that was that the the terrible thing i mean yeah that i mean all of that must have i mean all of that must have had a role to play in the in the feminization of society i mean the women vote thing has been around for for a long time. Um, so I don't know if that's, you know, that, that can be blamed for uh, more recent developments. But I think that, I think that this, this interacted with the civil rights stuff we talked about earlier. So if you look at human resources managers, who are sort of the commissars of the, uh, of, of, uh, sort of civil rights bureaucracy, the number of women um, are overwhelming. I mean, it's something like, you know, I, I have the chart uh, in my, uh, in my Substack on local institutions, just civil rights law. I think it's like something like 60 or 70%. Uh, so women are running these things. I mean, women are overrepresented in things like education and the education industry. So like the, you know, the teachers unions and then the, and the teachers teaching your kids are, are women. And so, you know, and they have a, they have a place to, you know, they have, they're, they're, I don't know if they're overrepresented in journalism, but there's a lot of women in journalism, right? Women are underrepresented in things like, uh, you know, uh, STEM and like entrepreneurship and, you know, uh, self-made millionaires and billionaires, but that, that's not really the, uh, that's not really the pressure points that are sort of shaping the culture. I think our our culture is being more shaped by the education industry, uh, human resources, government bureaucracy. And these are all places where women, uh, you know, have more of an appetite, 
Institute are more of an interest in going into. And yeah, I think I think that our, a lot of our culture reflects that. That means we're uh, you know we're, we're we're going overboard on safetyism. You know, we're we're not uh, taking uh, you know the consideration of not just the th- threat of something bad happening, but the you know the cost and time and convenience and money and just normal functioning of a lot of these COVID restrictions. Um, and other things, and then you know, in other areas too, you know, about be, you know, prioritizing feelings over over what's true or what what actually works. Um, yeah, I think I think we see it everywhere. Yeah, is there um, is there a political way to roll this back? No, not really. I mean, there, there, there's a cultural way. I mean, in the sense that if religion spreads and eventually the Amish are going to make up like 80% of America, you know, in like a hundred years because they have like eight kids each. Um, and so when you have, you know, when you have more religious people going into politics, just naturally sort of they, they form families and they tend to be uh, traditional kinds of families because that, that that's what tends to work. Um, and then you just get fewer women in places, but you know, to roll back to civil rights, uh, uh, bureaucracy and this stuff, you'd get you'd get fewer women in positions of power and influence too. So that's that sort of a bonus of of doing that. Um, but it's it's mostly it's mostly cultural and uh, yeah, I think uh, secularization and you know having nothing that sort of uh, encourages family formation to replace it um, has sort of made the sexes a little more um, a little more interchangeable than they otherwise would be, and so you get this feminization of society. Yeah, I'm curious what what your theory is um, of, around. The fact that you know we're, we're kind of in a demographic slump, if, if not, um, you know, on on a, on a very steep trajectory downward in the West. Um, well, what do you think the the main factor is there? Like, what? You no, know, I read a fast. I mean, I read a fascinating uh, blog post, um, a series of blog posts by Anatoly Carlin. Uh, he's a guy you can find on Twitter, and his argument. I mean, and I, I want to. I've liked this so much that I want to actually dig a little deeper into the data. But basically, there was some. There basically that uh, all throughout human history, there wasn't really selection for wanting children. There was more just selection for wanting to have sex. And what happened was a few places pretty early. So when the so when you when that stop happens, it stops happening, and you have. Uh, people having a right to choose or people basically being a little more free because of technology or because of economic development or culture or whatever, um, you get uh, birth rates collapsing. And basically, but but what happens is evolution moves very fast when you're selecting out only one thing. And so that turns around eventually. And so what's happening, uh, so you know, there's some evidence to suggest this, is that if you look at like places that uh, had their birth rates fall early, and this is Scandinavia, this is uh, uh, Great Britain, and this is France. They have higher birth rates today, so those are the ones with the turnoff fertility rate of you know two or close to it within Europe. While East Asia, um, East Europe, Eastern Europe, uh, these were places that had uh, very high fertility until pretty recently. Um, and so, in the last few years, these places, Eastern, even though they're in some ways more conservative, Eastern Europe and East Asia is more conservative than Western Europe. So that you know that sort of goes against the the uh, idea that it's uh, the, of the cultural of the cultural thing, and so you, you they haven't gone through this evolutionary process. I think there's a lot to that. Um, if you look within the U.S., there's a uh, there's a uh, or other countries too. You know, religious people have more kids within within uh, country. I think this I think this will solve itself just because exponential growth is a really really fast thing. I mean, if you have if you're you know if you're selecting for people who are having eight kids each, and each of them is having eight kids each, even if you lose um, you know two three to generate each generation. You lose half of them uh, to go out in the broader culture. They're going to, re, you know, they're going to reshape the demographics. And it seems like it's not, you know, it's not much until suddenly it is. That's how exponential growth works. Um, Eric Kaufman, 
doesn't go into the evolutionary theory behind it, but just talks about, you know, the, the uh, sort of the, uh, the numbers game and his book, uh, uh, Shall the Religious Inherit the Earth? And, and the, you know, you just do the basic calculations and they're pretty fast. So, yeah, I think this is, uh, you know, I think this is something, I think this is something that uh, it's deep in, as far as people's choices. Um, I think it will reverse itself everywhere eventually. I mean, I think it, it's basically as certain as anything can be, you know, not maybe not in 20, 30 years, but 50 to 100 years. I mean, this will, this will solve itself. Um, and, you know, the, and the, um, you know, so, so yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot to this. Um, you know, they're doing very interesting things in China. I'm fascinated to see what's going to happen. I mean, they're cutting back on the education industry. A lot of times when you try to force people to have uh, more kids, it doesn't work. Now, China is an unusually competent government and a, a government with an unusual amount of power and able to affect its, you know, will on the population. So it, it could be different. Um, we'll see. But, you know, this is going to be a fascinating, uh, a, you know, one of the things in the world I'll be most interested in watching in the next 10, 20 years. Because according to Carlin's theory, China, you know, very recently got its birth rate low. So it should be nearly impossible. But they're also, they have a government that's not like other governments. Uh, so we'll see what happens. Uh, are there any policies that are being proposed now, or are you just kind of convinced that uh, if, if anyone can do it, they can do it? Uh, well, I mean, no, like what, what I would propose, I mean, I, yeah, I, I, no, I don't think there, I mean, look, yeah, if you want, I mean, if you want to subsidize, uh, you know, uh, childbearing, you know, I think if you want to, uh, you, you know, it probably helps on the margin. If you have a more conservative culture, it probably helps on the margin, which, you know, I talk about through, uh, you know, fighting these evil ideas that have, you know, gone through the school system and elsewhere. Um, do I think that there is a, um, you know, a, a, a straightforward way to get us from, you know, in a country like America or like in Western Europe rather than like in, say, China, like, is there a realistic way to get the birth rate up by a lot as far as policy goes? I, I don't know. I, I don't think so. I've become a little bit more of a, a, a uh, you know, just just pessimistic on that front. I think the sort of the trends are what they are. Yeah, I, I believe that too. And I think it is kind of deeply cultural. You know, it's uh, a lot of people say, okay, you know, um, um, politics, is material people mostly care about their self-interest i think the, the the issue with children though it is much more expensive it is a, a terrible hit to your standard of living obviously i do think it's still cultural like i i mean i i used to work in, in central london with people making a lot of money spending it on a lot of things who were 30 something years old could have spent it on a child they didn't yeah it's ridiculous i mean it's ridiculous you look at like okay so who has the highest birth rate in the world it's like countries like niger uh things like the congo it's not because the the birth rate is, you know, because uh, children are more affordable in, in those places. Uh, you know, we, we were poor. I mean, America was poor. Europe was poor 30, 40 years ago. People had more kids. Uh, so, yeah, the, you know, I think when people like, you know, I don't like like sort of the generational identity politics where they're like, oh, you had it so easy. You could have kids. But now it's so expensive. That's nonsense. If anything, it's easier today. Um, and people just don't want to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I think it's, it's tied to, you know, optionality. People are just used to, to having, you know, a, a, a yeah. well, I mean, one thing I'm really big on is just, uh, it's not just that uh, education is liberal or it has these political bias. I think education in itself is a mistake. I think having people spend so much of their lives, you know, men and women uh, spending so much of their lives in a classroom where they don't learn anything practical, they're just jumping through hoops. That's a problem. So, you know, if you go to, if you're supposed to go to school until you're 22, just, you know, if you're a upper class, that's expected. And then sometimes you're going to go, you know, five years graduate school or you're just going to start your career. Yeah, that's cutting into your uh, time that you have to 
to form a family. Uh, so yeah, I, I, you know, I think there's you know there's 20 great reasons to reduce uh, the amount of education in society, and you know that's one of them. Yeah, yeah, and and the fact that you know education has a very limited marginal benefit after a certain point, especially yeah, so, yeah. more people in. It's like uh, it's like OnlyFans for your brain. You know, you don't want everyone on the platform. <laughs> Um, you also uh, s- opened a, a can of worms recently in a very related subject, um, eugenics, <laughs> um, or what people people understood this as being eugenics. I mean, you you stated um, a, a, essentially a fact that you know if you were going to have um, selective abortions uh, preponderantly in one part of the country rather than in another one, um, uh, there's going to be an imbalance in, in you know how many how many people with Down syndrome or maybe other other you know. Uh, congenital uh, diseases so it's um yeah people kind of blew a gasket over that i mean i'm i'm personally i'm 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 not pro-abortion i'm i'm anti-abortion obviously i think it's a it's a it's a nuanced subject but people really took it to mean that you know down syndrome people are less valuable and you're anti those people and it's a to me it was just a case study and and how you know people can really take something and you know, filter it through their lens and really, really, uh, yeah, blow a gasket about it. Um, yeah, I think people are insecure about their place because what, what I said was basically a factually correct statement, right? If you have one area of the country or one part of the world where a lot of people are um, people are choosing to get abortions when they get a Down syndrome uh, diagnosis and other places where they're not, they're going to have big differences in, uh, in rate of certain diseases and disorders and handicaps. I mean, that's just an obvious fact. And then people, you know, people dislike this implication of their belief, but, you know, they, that's the implication of the, uh, that's the implication of the belief. So there's a lot of places in, in Europe, a lot of places where people are more likely to abort their, uh, uh, children, uh, after a, uh, after such a diagnosis. And those places tend to have lower rates of those disorders. So it, it's an observable fact about the world. Um, when people, even even people in like conservative areas, when they do have the information, they tend to make you know this change choices as they do in Iceland or, or they do in Europe. And you know some people have a strong religious belief, obviously, and they don't do that. I mean that that's clear. Um, what's going on is that they're taking this very minority uh, position and trying, or at least a, a position that a lot of people will not you know will not live up to in their own lives, and they're trying to make it law. Um, and so that's a problem. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't think it's controversial to say, you know, what the implications of someone's beliefs are. And sometimes, you know, they're upset when you tell them that. Yeah, I think it's uh, the, the the interesting part about the reaction and the tweet was the fact that, you know, you state that 80% of people tend to make that decision. Um, but the reaction was almost, you know, completely like, okay, you know, either you shouldn't talk about this or why did you mention this particular fact? Or, you know, it, to me, it was a kind of a case study in that and how, um, you know, a nuclear tweet is formed. Uh, it's, it's kind of, well, you know what's interesting is because it's 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 actually a case of where conservatives have been a little bit successful. It's when they've behaved like the left. You know, the fact that they will go after people and they're, you know, they're so crazy about this issue. And they're using even the same arguments. They're talking about eugenics and, you know, not racism in this case, but like, you know, you being like a, a bad person because you think some people are better than them. This is, this is a liberal playbook. And, and the fact that it's so, such an overwhelmingly 
uh, female, like the pro-life movement on the right is like so overwhelmingly female. So you have all these, you know, I, I was very interested to see sort of the, uh, uh, the similarities, right, between wokeness and the pro-life movement. I think there's a lot there. And there's a reason that both of these have been successful, relatively successful in modern America. Uh, the pro-life movement, not as much as wokeness, but I mean, impressive given how little uh, support they have among elite ins- elites and elite institutions. Yeah, it's, um, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's always surprising to, to uh, people on the left, especially progressives, to understand that, you know, the, the most anti-abortion people you know, tend to be women. Um, I think, you know, having gone through pregnancy, uh, you know, it's, it really does kind of change you, especially if you have kind of a, a spiritual, um, you know, layer to your existence, you know, it, it does kind of, you know, it becomes a completely different issue. And, uh, you know, I've I kind of started to, to change in my position, you know, through the years and now, yeah, I, I can understand why, you know, I, I definitely understand, but I also understand my previous position and understand that this is, you know, a, a complex issue and also being Romanian, you know, we were talking before about, um, you know, what, what pronatalist programs work. Well, we had a very pronatalist yeah. Romania and um, working, it probably wasn't very, it wasn't working because contraception was illegal, uh, abortion. Oh, well, actually, I mean, I, I looked into this once because somebody, I was arguing with somebody like whether China could actually work. Like, do we have examples? So I looked into the Romania case and it's funny, you look at the TFR, it was like there was one year where it's like, it's like that. And, but then Romania actually stays higher than all of Eastern Europe until like the 80s. So you got like, uh, you got, I think, like two decades of higher birth rates. So in the, you know, not saying, not endorsing that policy. I mean, there was a lot of, lot, lot that went into it, but the question of can it work? It actually can work, you know, if your government is, uh, is willing to do certain things. And, you know, I think modern China is like a lot more competent than, than Romania was in, you know, the 19, uh, when did it start? Was it the sixties or the seventies? Um, I think it was like late sixties up to like yeah. the end of the eighties. The yeah. Right. So, so I mean, there there is a, at least a historical example of a uh, of a country, you know, having a pronatalist policy that worked and really worked in an extreme way. It uh, it would work in an extreme way, but it's also like a, kind of a scar in the history of the country. Like we still, uh, you know, remember yeah. there were uh, documentaries of orphanages in Romania, um, yeah. you know, that were just you know filled to the brim with these malnourished you know un- untouched children that would look like an like an affix twin video it was just like a, 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 a terrible uh yeah a terrible situation and that these were kind of the, the children of the decree you know we call them the the they could say yeah. children of the decree and that was yeah like- you don't want to you know you don't you're uh you know you're a country that that's that that point of history or that poor you don't want to you know have as many children as possible people who can't take care of yeah obviously that's a, that's a terrible Policy. Hopefully, in a you know, in a wealthier, uh, more advanced society, you would have you know a smarter, more focused policy. Yeah, yeah, because the policy was essentially uh, no abortions, no contraception. Uh, I think you could have uh, elective abortions after you had four children. Yeah, <laughs> you could get some form of contraception. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what the problem. Well, well, what else was there besides uh, besides uh, no abortion, no kind of was it? Was there something no contraception? Was there more? Abortion. Enforcing, like very violent enforcing of this very particular. How would they for? How would they force? They would just. Um, they they would like. They would send uh, the doctors that were found to be performing, you know, back alley abortions or something directly to prison. Um, you know, right. but with with. Like, oh, was that it? Was it just ban? Was it just banning abortion and punishing people who have abortions, or was there something more? People who had abortions, people who performed abortions, um, you know, and the fact that the actual commerce, you know, the black market was really limited in Romania. So you really, it was very hard to get things 
from outside because you know the guns were pointing inward. The the um, the, the borders were pretty not not very permeable compared to other countries in the area. So um, really wasn't anyway. The locally we weren't producing any of these things. You know there wasn't no one's being mm-hmm. killed in Romania. So um, yeah. yeah, there it was. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's interesting because there are some countries in East Asia where not a lot of women are on birth control and not a lot of people have abortions. I think I think Korea is like this um, and still they have pretty low birth rates. So, yeah, it's interesting that that's enough. At the risk of, of making this a pretty uh, weird podcast, I've heard that the pullout method is actually extremely successful. So yeah. well, why did Romanians do that then? I don't know. Apparently, they maybe they didn't know about it. <laughs> They weren't they weren't convinced of its success, so they were like, yeah, whatever. Um, so yeah, <laughs> this is off brand. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, I mean, um, there's, there's another kind of layer to this, uh, and I'm curious what your what your angle is on this. You know, is is a falling birth rate actually something that countries should be concerned with? I mean, I think so. I think more people is good. I mean, if you're utilitarian, I mean, like not in every situation, more, you know, more people are good. You know, sometimes people have miserable circumstances, but look, if you're a first world person um, who's going to live a first world life, yeah, I mean, it's better to be alive uh, than than not be alive. Um, It has, you know, implications for society. I think a lot of these, uh, you know, I think a lot of that craziness is by you know childless people, particularly childless women, and you know they 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 have some kind of emptiness in their life, and they're trying to replace it with something else. So it's better for society. I think people you ask anyone who's had kids, and you know it's it's so funny because you you like I've noticed it in like portrayals like Hollywood portrayals. If you watch something like uh, you know like Mad Men or something, it's always got sort of this message that like the people who had children were always like worse off because they had children. Like whatever else they would have been doing was so much cooler. And I don't think if you talk to most parents, regret is the main uh, is the main emotion or anywhere close to it. I think most will say it's you know it's it's uh, it's made their life better. Um, you know we worry about you know the characteristics of uh, of future generations and you know there's you know smart people stop having kids. You know you can you know what's gonna you know what's gonna happen to people's intelligence. I mean it's just a it's just a, it's just a fact. I mean what kind of society we're gonna have depends on who who has kids today. So yeah, there's a lot of good reasons uh, to worry about the um, the birth rate. Um, so yeah, I mean it, I'm not sure that government, you know, is certain to be able to do something about it, you know, within, within reason, but, you know, along the edges and culturally, I mean, we should all be, we should all be encouraging it. Yeah. I think, you know, I think you're right. You know, the, the, the Carlin hypothesis sounds, sounds like it's already kind of happening and it will, it will start to happen. Um, there are also competing ideas as well. Like for example, city, um, city living is, is, uh, associated with, uh, low birth rates. And it's ha- it has been since people were living in London, like in the, in the 1200s or wherever, wherever there's been documented, uh, city living for a long time, like the birth rates were significantly lower than in the countryside. So I think, you know, the, the more urbanization happens, the, the, the lower the birth rates tend to be, um, but, I'm, I'm, I don't know. I'm, I'm kind of hopeful <laughs> given this, uh, you know, the, the, the religious shall inherit the earth idea. Uh, and actually it doesn't necessarily have to be the religious is essentially whoever, whoever wants to, to breed in a way. And I think there is it's kind of a more traditionalist movement. Some people are like ex ex rationalists like me. Um, yeah. so I think there's, um, there, there are certain movements that aren't, aren't aren't necessarily religious that are going to be making you know making it. Well, yeah, I mean, and those people, I mean, there's nothing more certain that than whoever is choosing to have kids, you know, will have more kids, and there those people's genes will 
will get passed on, right? I mean, that that, that is certain. Now the the, the rational ex-rationalists and other people probably there's not as much of them as you know religious fundamentalists uh, who are having kids, and we, we don't notice those people as much. But one way or another, whoever's whoever you know wants kids is going to be having kids, and there's nothing more certain in sort of evolutionary theory or or you know in the, demographically you can imagine than, than that fact that this problem will eventually you know the the, the trend will eventually reverse. Yeah, and there's um there's a, a lot of talk kind of tied into the you know the the sex select or the the selective abortion uh, question about um kind of selecting embryos or I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the um, what the technology is called but it's essentially within the context of something like IVF you know you would be able to pre-select embryos with uh, you know a certain genetic makeup from a, a panel of you know, available right. embryos. Um, this is very hot topic that, you know, and apparently China is, is much more advanced in this, or at least is going to be much more advanced because they don't really have any, any uh, religious hangups with this technology, or at least they, they don't seem to have that. Um, I don't know. Do, do you think that there are certain things in technology that, you know, are, are graspable, sound like a good idea, but that we still shouldn't do just because of a kind of a more um, a precautionary principle? You know, it's like, don't don't pull the switch on the, on the singularity machine if you can help it. Um, or is yeah. it essentially kind of like um, a global problem where it's essentially a game theoretic problem where you know if, if China is going to do it, you'd better be first. Yeah, I used to think China was moving ahead with this, but actually, I think the trends are a little bit. I mean, they're more uh, they're more in tune with Western trends and Western ideas of ethics than than people think. So there there was one uh, there was one scientist who created, I think, the first baby with uh, DNA from three different people, and they actually put him in jail after the after there was sort of a backlash in the West. So actually, I think the the U.S. probably is less regulated on this stuff than uh, than China is. Uh, yeah, embryo selection is not really about. Uh, birth rates for the most part, because it's about, you know, which child you'll have. So, you know, the, the, the GWAS, the genome-wide association studies, they're getting better. So you can predict a little bit more than you could in the past about, you know, and sometimes, sometimes diseases are just, you know, binary, like does a person have, you know, one, one uh, disorder that's determined by, by one gene. And sometimes it's a predictor thing like okay this person has a slightly higher chance or a slightly lower chance of schizophrenia or uh, you know the, the higher chance of graduating college or or whatever and yeah i mean i don't i don't have a problem with these technologies i mean like ai you know we're still basically you know if you look at something like ai and like the singularity like that has like something if we create something that can uh that can supplement its own intelligence it becomes like a million times smarter than us then that there's unintended consequences this is basically taking human variation right and just selecting from among that human variation so i don't see you know i don't see you know the potential for it to to go that badly. Uh, so I'm generally, you know, in favor of these kind of technologies and I, I don't think you need government to do anything. I think people will generally uh, want to use these technologies often. Yeah. I, I don't have a problem with it. Yeah. I think the, 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 the first um, response to this kind of the, the knee jerk response is that, you know, this is probably going to be a very expensive type of technology. Um, you know, a, a kind of a stratum of, of society will have access to this and then they will, select their children to be sued. They're doing that. I mean, they're doing that now. So the, the, the sort of mating is getting higher and higher. So you're more likely to mate with someone who has civil education background. So that that problem is already there. Uh, you know, when things get, I mean, when technology, I mean, technology always starts out expensive and then, then gets cheaper and, you know, we should be uh, wanting to do that. So, I mean, that would hold back pretty much any technology because when it starts, you know, it's always more expensive, but then, but then hopefully you have innovation and then, you know, more people can use it. 
Yeah. But this, this, this type of technology is, sounds very visceral. It's like, you know, the, the makeup of your child, you know, it, it sounds like something very, I mean, it is something very intimate and very, um, very important, especially if you can, if you can slap on 30 IQ points to your child, you know, it's a, uh, it's quite a, it's well, quite that's a, un- genetic engineering is, I mean, different. So like, if you imagine, I mean, we're nowhere close to that, I think now, but yeah, it's different from embryos, like just selecting from, I mean, different, uh, you know, from different, uh, babies who are otherwise, uh, developing naturally. You're right. The, there's a, another step, but you know, I don't have a problem with the, the other genetic engineering stuff either. I think you'll get, you know, you'll get, uh, you'll get humans, um, you'll get variation. Like not everyone just wants to max intelligence. Some people want to max looks or they want to max, uh, you know, uh, you know, work a thinker or whatever. And so I think that would be cool. I don't think you'd lose the human diversity. I think you'd get actually a lot of diversity because people have different values. And uh, I think in a way it's, it's kind of debugging IVF because as, as far as I understand, IVF is, uh, is quite, you know, dysgenic at the moment. It's, it's quite, it's, it's a hard, uh, it's a, it's, there's, there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of problems associated with children who, who, uh, who come out of, uh, IVF. Um, yeah, there's, there, I didn't know that. I, I well, the, they tend to be older, right? I mean, the, the people who get IVF, right. Is it just that? It's essentially, you're, you're kind of shocking into life an unviable pregnancy with, you know, you know, kind of random sampling of sperm. Cause you're not really selecting for the, the fastest swimmer. You're just kind of, you know, taking it out of a fish and then you're, you know, injecting it into an egg and probably not the the best conditions. Maybe the egg is a bit older, like you said. So there's, there's uh, obviously this is essentially the recipe. Um, These people are, can't have viable pregnancies for whatever reason, you know? So you, you go to the witch doctor and he does this, this thing. And then later down the line, I mean, I think, uh, don't quote me on this, but I think it's, you know, autism, ADHD, you know, things like that. You know, things that- I didn't know. I didn't know the sperm, the fastest sperm. I mean, I, yeah, I didn't know that. I'd like to. I'd like to learn more about that. Some of the stuff you're right is just being older, and and that's going to have an effect. So I wonder. I wonder how much is that, and how much of it is other things going on. Yeah, I mean, you know, being uh, preterm, things like that. You know, just like uh, com- more more complex pregnancies, more um, you know, tend tend to have more comp- complexities, even even when when the the kids get older. So, you know, it's, uh-huh. it's, not, it's just not the best situation, but it is it is a viable pregnancy. And that's essentially what they promise anyway. But if if, you know, these uh, the embryo selection could help with that, you know, it essentially could make essentially IVF more viable or at, la- at least maybe it could drag it to a baseline that, you know, it's just like more um, more like a normal pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so you had a, a very interesting thread on <laughs> on uh, essentially fuck ups in, in Afghanistan, uh, and they were very um, I don't know. It, it was one of those you know greatest hits of of expert disaster. Uh, um, I'm curious, like, what do you think went wrong in Afghanistan? I mean, going to Afghanistan might have been the first thing that went wrong with Afghanistan, but what's what's your theory of why? You know, why was the why, why did the last, what, what was it, 20 years happen? And what, what were the factors that led to it? Uh, you know, I think America, I think there's a broader story here about American foreign policy, um, which is, it's basically the ultimate form of fake expertise. I mean, you have, the, you have this Pentagon um, and it's something like, you know, it's something I think like 10, it's like 10 or 20% of the American uh, federal budget. And it's just this big monster, right? And employees through contractors and through, 
directly through the military, you know, millions of people, the, the uh, you know, all this money that these companies, you know, they have, they have an interest, they start funding think tanks, they fund, you know, uh, activists and organizations that are always threat inflating. The, the, all the, what they say is, you know, China's a threat, Russia's a threat, Iran is, is, a, is a threat militarily. Um, and so you have these people selected, you know, these generals, you know, they don't, they don't get in their position because they've won wars. I mean, the U.S. won the last time the U.S. Uh, won a war. It's been a pretty long time. And so they're basically, they're, they're, they're political actors, basically. They're working within the system. They're getting, uh, you know, a lot of them, pretty much um, all of them at the top now, according, there's a Boston Globe article that showed this, uh, get jobs in the uh, weapons industry or some kind of consulting firm after they uh, after they retire. Um, and so you have, you know, I, I don't think people should just say it's Afghanistan. I think people need to be very skeptical of American foreign policy. I think they have to see it as a sort of form of fake expertise, a sort of a uh, money-making scam. The people believe in it, but the people who believe in it all have a uh, uh, stake in the, in the system. Uh, so the U.S. went to Afghanistan. I mean, and you look at like every step of the way. I mean, there was no interest in uh, negotiating with the Taliban. We just decided like, you know, what kind of, we didn't look at the country and talk to the people there or do anything. We just decided that, you know, this is the kind of government you should have. You should have a parliamentary system and you should elect, you're yeah, not a parliamentary system, the presidential system actually you should elect a president. You should have X number of uh, women in your parliament. Um, you should have girls' schools, you know, and, and it, the, the whole thing was never close to reality. I mean, the, 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 the Thing, you know, the thing was basically we were trying to remake a society uh, with, you know, and the resources weren't sort of co- co- uh, weren't equal to it, or the resources were just set by political constraints. Uh, but the mission always just what it was, what it was, uh, because you know that's what the generals were saying, and that's what sort of the foreign policy establishment wanted. They always wanted to say that whatever you happen to be doing right now um, is realistic. Uh, so that, yeah, I have a, a lot of good threads on this. I mean, it, it's comical. I mean, there's there's a book uh, uh, called No Good Men Among the Living, and I have a uh, a Twitter thread on that. If people want to find my Substack. I have a Substack which is just Afghanistan content, and it includes the uh, uh, the Twitter threads. I mean, just the, there were these local rivalries, and the U.S. has no idea what's going on in this country. And someone says, you know, my neighbor who I don't like is Taliban, and then they go like bomb, you know, you know, just go bomb the the person's house, or they would raid the person's house, and you know, it was just like this for twenty years, and then and it, and it collapses, and the government collapses, you know, before the U.S. could even uh, get out. So, I mean, what went wrong? I mean, you know, everything went wrong. The mission wasn't realistic. I mean, people weren't. In, in touch with uh, reality, um, you know, nobody could actually say, you know, what the U.S. Um, what the ultimate goal was. You know, you'd like to have some kind of, you know, stable democracy, but like when that when that was clear, that wasn't going to happen. You know, what were we? What did people want us to be there for, uh, for forever? Um, so yeah, I mean, it's just it, it's just a disaster, and that's why in the, in the New York Times piece and then the uh, the tough lock on the Taliban substack, I try to. Uh, tell people, take this lesson, apply it more broadly. It's not just Afghanistan. It's U.S. foreign policy. It's a lot of expertise out there, which is just fake. Yeah, it's and, and it feels like you know once once all of these things are in place, there is no mechanism to roll them back. Like you know these these agencies, these I have a feeling that you know lockdown is a bit like that. I mean, I, I wrote a piece on this because it feels like there is there are all these mechanisms to build up this this phenomenon uh, and to make it available as a tool, but there's not really a mechanism to, to deflate these things. Uh, and I feel like foreign policy is probably one of the, one of the biggest, you know, exponents of this problem. Uh, but, but almost anything that the government, you know, puts its grubby, its grubby hands on tends to have this dynamic where you just inflate and there's, there's no one really to. Yeah. Well, yeah, look at the TSA. I mean, there, there was a, the, uh, somebody attempted to blow up a shoe 
they were stopped by passengers on the on the plane. But now we've had you know the the, the, the TSA was in, so we take off our shoes for that. But the TSA was set up in response to nine eleven, and you know whether this made sense to have this forever or whether you could just sort of solve the you know just by fortifying the cockpit door and not letting people in, you could have you could have solved the problem that way. Um, the fact that people won't let themselves you know get hijacked anymore and uh, flown into a building, right? So you you have these you know you, you have no cost benefit analysis, but the TSA is still there. Air travel gets worse and worse. Um, yeah, and, and there's a, there's a lot of things you know when it comes to things where keeping people feel like they're you know they're unsafe. Um, there's a ratchet effect, you're right, and often public opinion goes along with it. I mean, you you pull people on lockdowns. I mean, it's scary. I mean, they're worse than the politicians. People blame the politicians. I think the people I think the people want more extreme measures than what the politicians are giving them. I think the politicians, if anything, you know, have been a sort of a, you know, I remember I've been in Southern California. And so even when they said, uh, you don't need masks anymore, um, uh, if you've been vaccinated, people were, you know, I was like, you know, still 80% of people in the store. And even when the uh, state government lifted the restrictions, 80% of people in the store were still wearing masks. People were still wearing masks outside. Nobody is saying like Fauci or the CDC or nobody is telling you you should wear masks outside of your vaccine. I'm like, except in, you know, rare circumstances, they'll, they'll say that. Uh, but still, I see a lot of people putting children in masks outside, wearing masks outside. I, I think we, we are, I am. You know, I think we've become a hysterical society and whatever we're focusing on just becomes, you know, all we think about, like when, when terrorism was a big thing, all we ever thought about was terrorism and no inconvenience was too great. Now it's COVID-19. Um, and yeah, it, it's terrible. I mean, the, the, the direction we've gone with this, I would have never suspected for a threat that at this point, after the vaccinations, after all this time, this threat that is so small, we'd still accept so much inconvenience in our lives, especially for children and what, what we do to them in school. I mean, it's just really, really depressing. Yeah, I, I feel like a lot of people are are, are gaining a, a certain amount of meaning out of this, out of these rituals. Like it's, uh, you know, there's not really a lot of religious observance in, in society anymore. But this seems like this uniting, uniting phenomenon where, you know, you are on the side of the people who are pro-safety. Uh, they care about the children. Uh, they're going to protect us from this, you know, from this miasma that's, you know, captured the land that's, you know, killing your grandma. Uh, and they're the good people. And I feel like maybe, you know, it has like a psychological effect for a lot of people, um, you know, people that are predisposed to this type of stuff. And most people, I think, are predisposed to not really understand, uh, um, you know, cost-benefit analysis. It seems like a, it's, a, it's a pretty exotic thing to, to think about cost-benefit. Yeah. That's right. I mean, it reminds me, I mean, I keep going, I go back to, again, the, the war on terror, just because there's so many uh, parallels here. But in, in like the decade after 9-11, you would get these articles, usually in conservative media, but sometimes elsewhere, that like, this is the struggle of our time. We're going to build, you know, we're going to, this is like World War II. We're going to, you know, bring democracy to the Middle East. And, you know, none of it ever made any any sense. I mean, uh, you know, you're going to go into Iraq because of 9-11. It just, there was just no connection to it. And you're going to build democracy and, you know, women's rights. And, you know, th this has gone. I mean, last 10 years, you don't see this. People are cynical about American foreign policy. But a lot of people did get meaning from this idea that there was this grand struggle against terrorism. There was this thing that was like, you know, as strong as communism or Nazism. And, we're, you know, the West is going to pull together and they're going to, you know, solve, you know, they're going to solve this problem and they're going to win a war. I mean, so, so the, we were 
primed for that. And I think, yeah, COVID is another another kind of thing like that. People are, you know, sort of, uh, some people are just sort of yearning for a chance to show how superior they are, how much they're willing to sacrifice. Um, yeah, and it's, it's, it's a terrible thing. I mean, and they're forcing these beliefs on, you know, they're, the, 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 you know, the ultimate, you know, the, these uh, practices that are just crazy, given any objective cost-benefit analysis, they're forcing it on the rest of society. Yeah, and it's it's interesting to me now uh, thinking about uh, Afghanistan. This is this this uh, this is the first time they've they've reacted negatively uh, to to a, a Biden policy, and the fact that it's it's been you know the fact that it actually happened was was quite surprising as well. Uh, but the fact that the media and Biden are for the first time not aligned, I, I wonder why do you think the media is is so um, is itching to stay in Afghanistan? Is it yeah. you know, imperialism? You know, uh, girls and women. To enforce trans rights. <laughs> well, yeah, the the yeah the media is you know very left wing on most things, but you know they're very they're very very pro war, and uh, a lot of the national security reporters are people who uh, you know they get they get where they are they have access to the you know to the military the national security bureaucracy a lot of times they're reporting they're basically top stenographers they'll say you know five sources say that you know Russia is going to do this or China's going to do that um, and so yeah there there is this uh, sort of you know imperialist. Uh, uh, mindset, right? That, you know, the U.S. is sort of doing great things in the world and it has to keep doing those great things. Um, you also have, you know, the partisanship of it, like Republicans are more excited about, you know, attacking the Pentagon over Afghanistan than than just about anything else because, they, you know, they're overwhelmingly the pro, they're still the pro-war party. And so you have the media and you have the Republicans together. That's a you know, they're usually loggerheads. I mean, that's a, that's a, uh, uh, you know, that's a powerful combination. Um, and America, yeah, and Americans don't really care that much about foreign policy. So whoever is like yelling loudest can sort of make whoever's trying to pull back from anything, um, you know, uh, make them look bad or hurt their approval ratings. Like, you know, I think that's what happened uh, to Biden, but you're right. I mean, it was a, it was a great feat of political courage and that that he did. I think in the end he'll he'll be better off for it because otherwise you would you'd keep fighting the war for for years and years. And you know what? If you did that, Republicans would have been attacking you for not not ending the war that, that Trump wanted to end. So at least it's, at least it's getting behind us. And you know, people I don't think are going to remember Afghanistan or think about that. You know, uh, indefinitely into the future. Yeah, I, I agree. It's uh, it's the only move the only move left there, and it should have been done uh, a long time ago. Um, I, I I wonder how much. Of, of our current arrangement, do you think is is technologically mediated? Um, how much of it is because of the the medium of the internet and how people tend to relate on it? And or, or also, for example, I, I think video is is the fact the fact that you can have you know instant video communication about random uh, anecdotal events like you know sorry to say it, George Floyd, um, and and that can spread like wildfire if you attach it to a narrative. Uh, and it could influence policy like like at that level. Yeah. Uh, it seems to me like it's 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 a it's a killer app for any sort of crazy political movement you want to seed. Yeah, no, unquestionably. So Zach Goldberg is that Great Awakening, you know, starts around 2010, 2010, 2011. That's about, you know, I don't think it's coincidental. It's about the time that Twitter really takes off. And uh, Twitter is used a lot by journalists, academics, you know, people who are uh, influential in shaping uh, public opinion. Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, sometimes you'll see these videos online and, you know, on Twitter and they'll get like, you know, all these retweets and, you know, all these people watching it. And I'll say this, you know, this black man was pulled over just for being black or something. 
And all you, you don't see that. You don't see that part happening. All you see is like him arguing with the police officer. You have no idea what happened before. And everyone will share this, right? Like, like it's just, you know, like it's just uh, like the video proves, you know, whatever the text is saying, people like, you know, Sean King put that out there. Um, so yeah, I think it's, you know, I think that there's a the, the polarization and like, you know, uh, you know, political divisions. I think that's traced to a more fragmented media landscape. In the U.S., we used to have three major networks, CBS, uh, ABC, NBC. They'd cover news for, you know, a half hour a night. And then you'd have your newspaper and that was it. I think twenty. I think talk radio, 24-hour uh, news channels who had, they had to fill up airtime and then they, you know, they went into opinion programming. I think that really split the country apart. I, mean, I think it made us crazier. Um, and then the internet is just an accelerant, right? It's just further fragmentation. Uh, so, yeah, I think this is particularly bad in, in the U.S. Now, what a lot of European countries do is they they just have censorship. I mean, they they just have censorship in Germany, in Germany and France, and so you can't have that much division if you know you restrict the space of what you're what you're allowed to say. Uh, we don't have that in the U.S. So we have that fragmentation. Plus, we have the uh, you know the size and diversity of the country. Uh, plus, we have you know the First Amendment. I think it's a, it's a recipe to just have this you know uh, you know just to have this very uh, polarized politics and just these moral hysterias um, and these, you know, these people being afraid of these different things. And we go through, you know, we go through, it's almost, we, we go through these uh, uh, sort of cycles. So, you know, I noticed that like the George Floyd, the police shooting was going on at one time, like me too calms down during that. Right. And that goes away. And then me too comes back. And then we have, you know, COVID, which knocks it off the front page. People said wokeness is gone. I knew wokeness would still be there. It just needed a while. Right. You just needed to go through the cycle because you can't pay attention to everything. And terrorism was like this, but like the only right wing version uh, of this. And yeah, it's a recurring problem. You know why I'm not I'm not particularly optimistic about American politics. Yeah, yeah, it seems like something that's very hard to to roll back. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things. Like once once you have the the magic thing in your pocket, it's it becomes indispensable in so many ways. Like for example, now a lot of the kind of government COVID stuff, you know, you get it for your phone. Yeah. Uh, you know, everything's in, in uh, I don't know w- weird codes that you get for everything. It's yeah, it's it's definitely a hard thing to let down, put down. I I mean. Yeah. I'm I'm one of the the, the worst offenders. Uh, I've got yeah, to same here. Yeah, I'm not putting it down either. Yeah, which you shouldn't do, children. Um, yeah, I want to I want to wrap this up by asking you the question of the show. We have a question of the show. Um, mm-hmm. It is: uh, Do you have uh, someone you know a subversive thinker that you think people should read more of, or you know listen more to, or could be anyone alive or dead, you know, writer, politician, whoever you think is you know some someone would probably influence you. Um, that, yeah, that should be more, um, better understood by other people. Uh, yeah, I mean, I mentioned Anatoly Carlin. I think, I think he's a, he's a really smart guy. Um, let me see who, who else is, uh, sort of a subversive, uh, thinker. Um, you know, it's sort of, it's too like easy to say Steve Saylor. I mean, everyone, everyone, I think reads Steve Saylor. So it's, it's sort of such, a, such an obvious. Uh, uh, mentioned yet. So if anyone does not know about Steve Saylor. No, they're afraid to. They're afraid to. I'm not, I'm not afraid. Uh, that's the difference. Uh, I think, you know, Ann Coulter is very underrated. Um, she retweets me a lot, but, you know, you, if you just put her in with the other right-wing sort of bomb throwers, and she's not like obscure or anything. I mean, she's very famous, obviously. But if you just put her in with like these other like right-wing sort of media personalities, you'll miss something because she's actually smart she knows the facts and you know she's she's provocative but you know she she has she's uh she's very good on things like crime and and things like that um 
yeah, uh, you know, like there's some leftists who are like, if you want to woke, someone to follow who's woke, I, I like I like uh, Michelle Goldberg from the New York Times, um, uh, Jeet here from the New Republic. Uh, these they're woke and they're going to be you know as woke as you expect. Uh, but I think that sometimes the woke people do have um, smart critiques of uh, of Republicans and the right. Um, and so you, often the people who will be most right about a movement are, are its worst critics. I mean, that, that's usually true for, for both sides. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I recommend, uh, you know, it's a cliche, but I recommend some intellectual diversity, but not that, you know, not, that, not just for the sake of it, but just because, you know, some people are going to be crazy on one thing, but will actually be insightful on, on other things. And you should try to, you know, get what you can from different sources. Yeah. If you can stomach it. <laughs> <laughs> because I think that's why people don't really have have such a such a varied. Uh... Well, you, should, well, you should be able to. You should not let it get to you. You should be able to read stuff that's really, really stupid and, and just deal with it. I mean, that, that's my recommendation to everybody. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's a, a very good recommendation, and so it's a very good place to to, to wrap on. Um, and I thank you very much, Richard. I want to point people towards your excellent Substack. Which is uh, Hanania at, at Substack or uh, just Richard Hanania.substack.com. I'm not, you know, original with the naming. Okay, perfect. Well, yeah, it's uh, it's it's the best. That's where people can find you, uh, and also the uh, CSPI um, Center. I'm not sure if there's publications coming out, but people can follow you on Twitter uh, on that. Yeah. We have good publications and out, and we do have publications coming. You can find us on Twitter too, and you can find you know what we what we've written before. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Richard. It was it was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, thanks, Alex. That was fun. If you like what you're hearing, want to see where I take it, and maybe want early access to episodes, bonus episodes, access to the AMA, or you just want to support the cause of dissident speech or my work in general, head to my Patreon at patreon.com slash aksubversive. Your donations are what keeps the lights on and makes the show possible, so thank you.